Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, we're going to talk about loneliness. Now, before you hit the pause button and move to that next podcast in your list, I want you to consider this one fact. 72% of global workers say they're lonely on a regular basis. Now, that feeling impacts in your engagement scores, your productivity, your health and days of out of the office, your sense of inclusion and belonging, the cost of your health care, retention policies, retention practices, and more. Now, I know as a manager and a leader, you may think it's not your problem, but we want to get you to think again, and we want to show you what you can do about it. So my guest today is Ryan Jenkins. Ryan's an internationally recognized keynote speaker. I will say a great one, having heard him on stage on a couple of occasions, a virtual trainer and the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Connectable, how leaders can move teams from isolated to all in. And for a decade, he has helped organizations um, learn the lessons of how to lessen worker loneliness, create inclusive cultures, and prepare for the future of the work. He's also the co-founder of LessLonely.com, the premier resource for addressing workplace loneliness. And I'll add for fun, Ryan lives in Atlanta, Georgia with his wife, three children, and a yellow Labrador. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Wanda. Looking forward to this conversation. So am I. So am I. So I always like to start with why. You've done a ton of work around generations, work that I've really admired and quoted dozens of times. So why this shift to connection and loneliness? Yeah, so you're right. For about a decade, I've been studying generations and been helping organizations understand the nuances across generations so they can better work and lead and communicate across generations. My last book uh, was all about Generation Z. So I was uh, informing uh, leaders and organizations on who, what to expect from this emerging generation. And it was in writing that book that I discovered that 79% of Gen Z actually experiences loneliness on a regular basis. And it's one of the first times we've seen a, the, the emerging generations experiencing more isolation and loneliness than the elderly community. And so the, there was this massive shift happening. And I found that, one, very troubling. And two, I wanted to figure out what I could do to understand why this was happening and what we could do to help this emerging generation. So that launched me into understanding loneliness. And this was all pre-pandemic. And then when the pandemic happened, I brought all my loneliness research to a lot of my clients wondering and and not convinced that um, anyone would want to talk about this, but I decided to wade into those waters anyways. And I was floored by how much appetite there was to talk, finally talk about loneliness. And then that really escalated all of my um, research. So then we surveyed over 2000 global workers and worked with 50 organizations and leaders on what they're specifically doing to reduce isolation and loneliness at work. And then we wrapped all that up into a a book and um, it's been a fun journey and a lot of insights to glean. So I'm excited to share those with your audience today. Excited to hear them. So 79% of Generation Z, which is for if you're not clued into the generation language, this is the very youngest generation just now entering the workforce, maybe in two, three, four years, is having more isolation, more sense of loneliness 
than our elderly population who's retired, not employed, and we've always worried about loneliness for that population. That's astounding. 79%. Okay, 2,000 workers, 50 companies. That's a pretty big study in my world. All right. So, Brian, first thing, how serious is this problem? Sounds pretty serious to me, but is it just a Gen Z problem or is it it an all over the board problem? No, loneliness is a universal human condition. So we all experience it. And so that's been one of the things that we've been excited to, why we've been excited to enter in this conversation is to try to destigmatize loneliness because it's not shameful. It's a signal, right? It's a signal that we belong together, that we're wired for connection. And um, I recently had a, uh, um, a gentleman, it was actually a CEO of a large telecom company that was introducing me before a, a large event. It was a live event. I was speaking in front of a, a large group. And the CEO started introducing me by stating this. He said, you are not meant to feel lonely. And I about fell over because I thought that is the exact opposite of what I'm about to, <laughs> to, to speak on. And it turns out he was reading from a memo that he had sent to his 30,000 person company. And, and with the same title, you are not meant to feel lonely. And I just think it underscores how wildly inept we all are at one, dealing with emotions at work, but two, around loneliness. We don't know much about it. And so my conversation to that audience that day was loneliness is universal and it's useful. It's universal and it's useful. It's useful in the sense that, again, it's our biological cue that we need each other, that we're healthier together, we're stronger together, we belong together, we perform better in organizations when we have straight, strong connections across our team. Um, so that's kind of the backdrop, but it is serious. And to be honest, you know, just like you and I and everyone else on planet Earth, we've been ignoring the topic of loneliness for our entire existence, yeah. as so have neuroscientists. And so we actually don't know a lot about the science of loneliness up until the last few uh, several years, we've really started to unpack how it's actually showing up in our brain. And now we're starting to really understand how extremely detrimental it is to our physical health and our mental health. So yes, it is an invisible ailment that is, is, is uh, wrecking havoc on our physical bodies. But then at work, uh, when we experience loneliness, like the data that you shared at the top, 72% of global workers say they experience it at least monthly. At work, it's ravaging our performance because people that are experiencing isolation and loneliness are seven times less likely to be engaged at work. They're five times more likely to miss work due to stress or illness. And then they're twice as often to think about quitting their job. So um, yes, at every angle you look at it, loneliness is creeping in. It's impacting our health and our relationships and our performance at work. But we got to keep in mind, you know, this is a universal and useful uh, emotion. And if we get our hands around it and we can equip ourselves with some some very subtle strategies, we can really move the needle in a big and effective way. Yeah, I just want to underscore. I mean, I think we all feel bad for someone who feels lonely. Okay, and we'd all recognize that is not a good state. And I think we'd all recognize that there are times when we have felt lonely It's the sustained loneliness, you know, feeling lonely once a month, feeling lonely once a week, that seems to be the significant problem. Okay. So, uh, you know, that is the piece that I think is such a big news and something that we really need to pay attention to. And clearly, as you quote in the book, much of the evolutionary biological evidence believes currently that the reason we've survived as human beings, as human homo sapiens, in fact, is largely because we learn to bond together in tribes and look out for each other. And so there's a lot of argument that we are literally hardwired 
to be in community and not to be separated or isolated. Okay. And I'm going to make one more connection for me, which is from an inclusion and diversity point of view. If you're trying to create an inclusive culture, having somebody who feels isolated, alone, or lonely, particularly if they're of an underrepresented population, however you want to define that, then that is just compounding their ability to contribute. That's making the sense of inclusion and not belonging even stronger. And there goes your retention. And there goes the commentary on Glassdoor. And there goes the reputation to recruit more like them coming in. I mean, the compounding effects of this one for things beyond just engagement are big, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well stated. Yeah. And, and um, <laughs> there's so many pieces to this and angles to this. And to your point, what's really tricky about loneliness is that uh, we tend to go inward. When we experience it, we, we retreat inward, mm-hmm. which is the exact opposite of what we need to be doing. Mm-hmm. And it compounds on itself. To where if we retreat inward, well, then we start to get really distrustful of anybody trying to come help us. So to your point, it's that sustained loneliness that gets really detrimental. And so that's why this is a conversation for everybody, no matter, you know, folks that I've heard from audience members or clients of ours thinking, well, I don't really experience that, nor do I think this group in our organization, they experience it. And I'm like, that's fine. That's actually good because you actually need to be the one that's actually observing and pulling people back in because it's we're only as unified as our loneliest team member. And so it's it's all of our jobs to be aware of some of these disconnection behaviors so that we can continue to bring people in, nurture and cultivate that culture of belonging because you, you hit it right on the head. As soon as we start detracting, it really compounds on itself and we can find ourselves out of whack and out of the sink real quick. And oftentimes, because we don't openly talk about loneliness, we sometimes we blame other things, right? We immediately go to depression or we think about burnout um, when really it's it's perhaps the the simple solution is to just cultivate more connections. More connection. Yeah. Well, connection is an antidote, one of the antidotes to burnouts too. So that's a full circle argument. Um, just a reminder that if you're using the Gallup survey as an indication for engagement, one of their top 12 or one of their 12 questions is, I have a best friend at work. And we tend as managers to listen to look at that and go, what does that have to do with engagement? But at the same time, this is directly related to this whole notion of loneliness and feeling a sense of belonging. And I'm going to do a story that I've told a couple of times, but I'm going to tell again, which is working with a consulting company and talking with the CEO and the top team about their culture and the impact on diverse talent, particularly among women. And the CEO said, I interview our senior most women and I ask them, who is your closest friend at work? And they say, I don't really have one. And he says, no wonder our women are leaving, because if you don't have somebody who kind of picks you up in those difficult times, it's lonely enough as a profession to be on the road as a consultant all the time. But if you don't have a best friend that's pulling you in, then why would you stay? What's the connection point? And I always thought it was impressive that he saw he both asked the question and saw the impact of it. But we often don't see it. We don't recognize how, how much that has to do with people's engagement, commitment. Okay, so I have to talk about why. I always like to know why. Why? So it sounds like the loneliness equation has gotten worse. It's certainly worse for Generation Z, or it, do you have a different view on that one? And then why? What's causing the loneliness to increase? Yeah, you're right. Loneliness has been increasing. The pandemic really 
put a spotlight on it and accelerated it. Um, but there's a silver lining to that. And, you know, whatever increases can also decrease. So loneliness is malleable. It's yes, it is increasing, but it can decrease. And you, it, the, how to decrease it uh, takes a lot less effort than many think. Um, but the reason why it's been decreasing, or I'm sorry, excuse me, why loneliness has been increasing, there's a number of factors. And we surveyed folks and asked them the top response that folks said was busyness. Uh, just there's more on our plate. You and I were chatting before we hit record here um, was, was that, you know, j- there's just too many meetings that so many organizations are having, right? We're jumping from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And we don't, you know, research tells us that time constraints severely limit our willingness to engage with others. So we just simply don't have time to invest in connections and cultivate new connections. So that's number one. Number two is technology and social media that folks said. Uh, it's just getting in the way of, of being fully present and uh, connecting with others. Um, specifically social media, right? We, we have this tendency to social snack. So we're just mm-hmm. snacking just enough to where we're keeping loneliness levels down enough, but we're not having those nourishing conversations that we need to really boost our well-being and protect us from the detriments of loneliness. Um uh, there's eight of them that we've identified in the book. The other big one that I think stands out to folks is around this idea of dependency shift. So now that the world's information is decentralized and we have it in the palm of our hand and our smartphones, you and I are less uh, dependent on each other. So if something was to break in your home and you know normally we'd go across the street and talk to a neighbor and see if they had a tool to fix it or if they knew how to fix it, or maybe we'd call a parent or friend now, what do we do? First stop is usually YouTube. There's no yeah. human required. Yeah. And so there, those, there's all those little opportunities throughout. You know, Think about it in the work context. If you don't know how to do something in Excel, you're jumping on YouTube to figure out how to do it before you swivel your chair and talk to your colleague. So there's so many of those subtle little nuances that we're, you know, there's a dependency shift. So we're not engaging with others. Um, now, all that's not bad, right? But we just have to keep it in check if our goal is to cultivate more connections, uh, have better worker well-being, and ultimately better performing organizations as well. Right. You have two stories in the book that I think highlight these particularly well. One of them is shopping for music. Tell us that story. I think the analogy there is just brilliant. Yeah. So think about, you know, pre the digital age, think about what it took to go buy a piece of music. Um, you typically might have conversed with a friend who actually made you aware of this new album and you thought that sounds great. So then you would walk down to the, you know, wh- whatever music shop was near in your neighborhood. And then you'd probably have to talk to the clerk at the music store to figure out where that album was or if they had it. And then you'd find it, you'd, you'd stand in line and then you maybe converse with another person about their music choice or if they like that album and then you get up to the checkout and you're then actually having a conversation with the person checking you out. And then typically you'd go home or go to a friend's house, right? And put on the, the music and you enjoy it together. So there was like five to seven different connection points with other humans in that process of buying an album. And then you converse that or contrast that to today. And all it takes is two words, Alexa, play. <laughs> no human required, right? <laughs> So it's a good example, and thank you for mentioning, Wanda, of the dependency shift, and then also this idea of how technology is replacing a lot of this human connection that we once took for granted. 
Well, I know old studies, since I'm dating myself, pre the days of really buying your groceries online when various grocery stores were piloting it. And one of the complaints coming out of that work is an awful lot of people like to go to the grocery store because that is their social outing, particularly older people. So the belief was it would never get adopted. Now, today, fast forward, hardly anybody goes to the grocery store, especially if you live in a major metropolitan area, unless it's something unusual. There's lots of adoption of the online shopping, but we're missing even in that the social interaction you would have had with people in the store, with your neighbors, if you ran into them, with the clerk. I mean, there's a whole lot of interaction that would have connected right there. Even if you didn't speak to somebody, there's still a sense of being part of a community by being in the local shop. So mm-hmm. I think in dozens and dozens of ways, we've lost our day-to-day connection with each other. All right. You have another one I love, which is about the can opener. Yeah. So um, I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I've got three children under six at the, at the, as the time of this recording. And um, the children are, are my, my youngest. We recently had a birthday for him and he turned one. And as you do these days, when you're one of your child turns one, you have this big party and uh, you know, you, you just go overboard and even though they're not going to remember it. And we were planning this big party and we were in the kitchen doing all the dishes and creating all the different food and dishes for, for the party. And we invited over our family friend, Cassidy, who's our sitter. And she's a, uh, at the time she was in college and she was helping us with the dishes. My wife handed her a can and said, Hey, can you put these, uh, these capers on that dish? And she took the can and said, sure. And then she turned and her and I were then, my wife and I were then beginning to uh, put together a separate dish and a few moments went by. And then we turned our attention to Cassidy and realized there wasn't any activity going on with that can. So we investigated a little bit further and found out she was on her phone. We thought, oh no, she's gotten distracted uh, in that short of period of time. But turns out she wasn't distracted. She was actually being extraordinarily useful and resourceful, excuse me, resourceful because she wasn't uh, you know, scrolling social. She was actually on YouTube looking at a video on how to use a manual can opener because <laughs> she'd never used one. So of course she was on YouTube trying to figure that out. So rather than turning to one of the, you know, warm human bodies, you know, in the kitchen there to ask for some help, she turned to YouTube. So again, it's another example of this idea of dependency shift and how we're just less dependent on each other. And um, we've got to fight for these connections because if we don't, we're going to continue to drift away from each other and we're going to find ourselves unfulfilled and ill and and out of sync with each other. I think it's, um, I love the understory there about the assumptions about a generation, Gen Z mm-hmm. in this particular case, and distracted by their social media and can't stay focused on any task. And actually, it's the polar opposite of that one. Incredibly resourceful, as you said. All right. So generational differences in loneliness. You've talked about Gen Z being more isolated than even the older population. Why do you think what's driving that? Is there anything particular for this generation that's not happening for all of us? Is it just the social media? Is it something else? Yeah. So according to the research, the, as I mentioned, 79% of Gen Z reports sometimes are always feeling alone. So contrast that 79% with Gen Z with boomers who reported this, um, that same data point, but only 50% said that they experienced that. So pretty drastic between 79 and 50%, right? So a couple of things are happening here. Number one, I think Gen Z is just, they're just much more of an open generation, especially as it relates to mental health. So I think they're just more inclined to actually raise their hand and, and immerse themselves in these conversations. 
and be a little bit more in tune to, to yeah. their mental health needs. Uh, but that's not contributing to all of it. And I think the biggest X factor here, a couple things. One is I think is a technology, right? Social media and, you know, the devices that we're all using, they are incredibly useful. None of us would, would push a button to delete all of it off the face of the planet because they they enrich our lives. Mm-hmm. But there's an entire generation that hasn't had a say in the direction of it. They've just been born into it. And so they are, they are wrestling with it to a different degree than any of us, any of us else have. So that's a big contributor. But this other interesting one, Wanda, is this idea of around individualization. Mm. Um, so many of the things that we actually, let me back up. There was a, an interesting tidbit um, and conversation I had recently with someone where they were talking about how the term nuclear family was mm-hmm. actually a marketing ploy. So they, the idea was let's break down these larger groups of, of communities into these nuclear families so that we can essentially sell more toasters into that community. <laughs> right? right. So instead where we're all can maybe share some of these appliances. No, now we're, we're, we're individualizing to some degree so we can sell more of these products to a group. And in a sense, that's what's happening today. We all have very individualized experiences, right? If you or I went on Amazon and searched the same product, we'd get different results because it's all based off of our previous uh, behaviors right. and, and our, our preferences. Same thing with Netflix. We could all go and search the same thing, but get different results. And so what's what's going on there is it's actually removing this helpful tool that we've used for a long time, which is called tr- triangulization. So let's say you and I were at a, at a uh, museum and we were looking at uh, a painting on the wall. And then let's say you walked up to that painting as an, we were both strangers. That painting would serve as a triangulation point to where you and I could then have a conversation about that painting. I could say, hey, well, that's a beautiful shade of blue that artist used. And then you could say, I really like that too. And all of a sudden there's a points of conversation. Similarly, you could bring a dog to a dog park and the dog serves as a triangulation point for another dog owner. You can have conversation based on the dog. So back to individualization, when, when we're in our, and our heads are in our devices, we are having individualized experiences that if I was to approach you, um, I wouldn't know. I, there was no triangulation point because what you're experiencing is completely individualized and we have no point of reference to actually engage. There's very few of us that are actually watching the same TV show, right? Because there's just so much uh, of us are, are digging into our individual preferences. Now that's helpful. It's useful as consumers, right? We want that. We want individualization. We want those um, things to be catered to us, but we have to be careful when it comes to building community and cultivating connections because it's fraying that because we, we do, we have less triangulation. We have less commonality because we're all becoming so much more individualized. Essentially, you point out something that captures a conundrum for me. So a decade ago, two decades ago, I used to spend a lot of time talking about networking, you know, how do you network? And then that went away. Nobody needed to hear that conversation again. It's come back up again. People have lost the gift of just small talk. And you're explaining why. One thing is the pandemic and the busyness has taken our time away from doing it. But the second one you're saying is the natural points of connection. Oh, I see you're reading that book, for example, the triangulation or when a dog is that those random things are stripped away. So it's hard for me to know where to even begin a point of common interest, just something Mm -hmm. simple. So, okay. Makes sense to me. All right, Ryan, hit the quit. I think you've hit most of this. Why, how it impacts work. So you've said it hit its engagement. 
um, dramatically, it says seven times more likely to be disengaged. You've said it's twice as likely to leave. You said increased in mental health. You've said increase in health cost. Are there any other impacts we need to be focused on of loneliness? Yeah. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, um, you know, you mentioned networking. When people talk about networking, I always shake my head. And, you know, I think we experienced going through the the pandemic that, you know, we have a social muscle and it needs to be exercised. Otherwise it'll atrophy. So of course we're all familiar with the importance of physical health. A lot of times, you know, we're, we're getting more and more attuned to the idea of mental fitness. Um, so physical fitness, mental fitness are important. But the other thing now is social fitness. Uh, we, we've got to keep at it because it's a muscle and we've got to train ourselves. Um, and so hopefully, yeah, we, we've laid some good groundwork here to, to, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Have listeners understand why this is important. And um, yeah, don't forget about that social fitness piece because it's super, super important. It's excellent. Um, social fitness. Yes. We have been talking about IQ as a driver for your performance. And then in the last 20, 30 years, we've been talking about emotional intelligence as a driver for performance. And now if you think about what really drives performance, something that I am on a mission about is that ultimately it has to do with being in my optimal mental state, which is I'm sharp, my brain is sharp, you know, every part of me is sharp, and I feel socially connected. So I'm rested, relaxed, restored, and connected. And I think we've talked about the restoration, and we've talked about the relaxation, and we've talked about the physical components of those, but what we haven't talked about is the social connection. So, okay. Perfect place for a breaking point, I think, Ryan. So if you're listening to this and you thought loneliness wasn't for you, I hope it's convi- I, we've convinced you that regardless how you're feeling about loneliness in your life, it's an endemic problem in your organizations and impacting your youngest workers in dramatic ways. So to repeat, 79% of Generation Z report sometimes or often feeling lonely in contrast to 50% of boomers, and it has been increasing Um, So when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about, so what do you do about it? My guest today, Ryan Jenkins, and the book is Connectable, How Leaders Can Move Teams from Isolated to All In. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? 
For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Ryan Jenkins. The book we're talking about is Connectable, How Leaders Can Move Teams from Isolated to All In. Um, and I should say that Ryan is also co-founder of a premier resource on workplace loneliness called LessLonely.com. Um, the thing I think that's most fascinating about our prior conversation is just recognizing that A, loneliness is a thing. It's a big thing. It's having a dramatic impact on all the stuff that we care about as leaders like engagement, productivity, inclusion, and many, many more, let alone health and physical um, problems. But if you stop to say, why is it that it has increased? I just want to highlight three things that Ryan said. Um, one is we're all busier than we've ever been. Something um, Rob, uh, whatever his last name is at the moment that I can't think how terribly embarrassing um, has said in his over collaboration overload that we have too many meetings and we've cut out the social connection component of those meetings. If you stop to think about it, that the technology is allowing us to snack which what that means is I know the basics about if I were connected to Ryan on social media, I would know that his kids just have a birthday party because I'd see the photos posted of it, but it would mean I did don't have to ask a question. So how are you and what happened with the kid? I'm, I, it's already, mm -hmm. I've gotten it. I don't have a conversation there. And the third is this notion of the dependency shift um, so that we're more dependent on finding the information by ourselves rather than interaction with each other. And then the individualization, what I see online and what everybody else sees online aren't the same. There's no common, easy chat. And I can see how all of those drive against connection. Okay, Ryan, I want to talk about what we do about it. But first, I have to ask the controversial question. I'm a manager, a leader inside an organization. Why is it my problem and not the employee that's feeling lonely's problem? Yes. Great question. Great recap. Um, before I answer that question, I should have done this at the, at the top, but I think it's helpful for folks to understand the definition of loneliness. Yes. And it, it's not the absence of people. It's the absence of connection. So, you know, someone that could be in a crowded office could still feel lonely and isolated, uh, even though they're amongst other people, if they don't have connections with those individuals. Conversely, someone that's working remotely who has strong connections to the work, to their teammates, to their manager, they may experience less loneliness than that person that's in an office surrounded by people. In fact, that can be even more detrimental, right? You're surrounded by people. You're thinking, I shouldn't be feeling this isolated, but I still am. So it can almost uh, you know, work against you essentially. So that's really important for folks to understand. It's not the absence of, of people. It's the absence of connection. And then you can think about connection to oneself, think about connection to the work itself, to the purpose of the organization. There's all these other connection pieces that can 
help us to reduce isolation. So I wanted to, to start there because I think that's helpful. But back to your question is around, you know, why is this a manager's problem? Well, um, here's a good way to think about it. Recently, there was some research done where they put a group of people through an experience of exclusion and their brain lit up. Well, it's not very surprising, but where their brain lit up was really telling because when they experienced exclusion, the part of the brain that lit up was the same part of the brain that registers physical pain. So yes, experiencing exclusion is registered in the body as if you're being physically hit. So this, I, to me, this, this underscores maybe the whole conversation as to why all of us, especially leaders, need to step in, in here. Because if you had a team member on your team walk through the doors of work and they had a bleeding appendage, of course, you're not going to ask them to, to get to work and try to uh, you know, overcome the distraction that is their bleeding appendage. You're going to ask them to address that so that then they can show up fully to work and focus on the work at hand deliver for customers and clients. Well, the same is true with emotions, you know, and, and mental health issues that we're uh, encountering. So loneliness is right there, right? To where if you're experiencing isolation, you're trying to show up at work, it's as if you're having that bleeding appendage because that's how your brain's registering it. So we are distracted at best and deep, debilitated at worst. So we have to get this right. We have to focus on stronger connected teams if we're going to have a higher performing team. And you know, your listeners know this, that, that a, the, the balance we're trying to achieve here is high performance and worker well-being. That's the balance we're trying to strike. Too often I see in, in my work and the clients that we work with, they're focused too much on high performance to where you know, uh, their worker well-being is sacrificed and it leads to burnout and high turnover. Or the other is true, where they're they're catering to every whim of and every emotion and every need of, of their workers, and they sacrifice the high performance. So we got to find this balance, and that's why loneliness, addressing loneliness, is so crucial because you you address one thing and you get both those benefits. The worker well-being improves, and then you're also getting more performance because folks aren't their body isn't fight or flight trying to try overcome the sense of isolation. They actually feel, wow, I'm safe here. I feel collected. I feel part of this team. Let's go. Let's deliver for the client and customer. Let me show up for my team members and let's do some extraordinary work. And oh, by the way, why why would I ever leave? Because this is fantastic. Yeah. Okay. All right. Balancing performance and worker well-being. And I do believe we can't get those out of whack, but you can't ignore one at the expense of the other. I think is what you're saying. You make a good point. You know, the brain lights up as if it were in pain. So if we had somebody on the team hitting somebody else, you would stop it. But the isolation is the equivalent. I can't see it necessarily, but it's the equivalent impact on the individual who's feeling the loneliness. Okay. All right. I'm sold. Good answer. (laughs) Now, so what do I do about it? Here I am a manager. Hey, how do I recognize it? How do I know somebody is, even can I just ask, is what's the best technique? Do I know somebody's isolated? Yeah. In the book, we created essentially a four-step framework for leaders to go through uh, and really anybody inside the organization could follow it to reduce isolation. Um, but the first step to your point is really, it's to look at loneliness, like to understand um, what it is, how impactful it is to our, our own well-being as well as the well-being of our, of our work, workforce. Um, and so we've created some resources for that. So at lesslonely.com, we've actually got a self-assessment. It's a statistically uh, validated assessment that actually allows an individual to figure out what their own personal loneliness levels are. 
So that's really important for anybody. Even if you don't think you experience it, that's a good way to start getting your hands around this idea of, of loneliness and how it might be impacting you or those around you. And then we've also, uh, we created a team connection assessment, which is the, as far as we know, it's the first empirically validated assessment that can actually score and give you a quantifiable result as far as, you know, how, how connected your team members are with each other. Um, because it is, it's kind of nebulous, right? And you can't just really pinpoint it. And we've had a lot of leaders go through it and they, and they, they say, you know, they, they actually are disproportionate. They're saying, gosh, I feel like my team's really discon- disconnected, but the results of the team are saying, no, we're actually feeling really connected. There's certain areas where you can pinpoint it. Um, so that's it, just kind of um, looking at right. it. Another key thing for leaders, which is very jarring, it's very, um, it's always gets ears perked up, is that solitude is actually insurance against loneliness. So, um, again, think about loneliness is not the absence of people. It's the absence of connection. One of those connections you've got to nurture is one is with yourself. And this is especially important for leaders because um, we've got to get away from the noise so that we can, you know, really start to uh, think about what is the preferred future of my team and how do I, what do I need to do to draw that closer to my team? And that happens in solitude. You know, I don't know any leaders that are constantly jumping from meeting to meeting to meeting that feel like they're actually uh, vision casting and right. And trying <laughs> try to uh, strategically think. Um, and so don't be afraid of, of solitude. It's um, if you think about isolation, it's really kind of neutral. The positive state of isolation is solitude where it's self-directed it's meditation, you're, you're journaling, you're, you know, vision casting for your team. The negative state of isolation is loneliness um, and so it's a, there's a good distinction between there. So all that to say, looking at loneliness is really important. There's some tools out there that we've developed that you can engage with, but also spending time in solitude can go a long way as well. Okay. All right. So lesslonely.com is where I'd go to do the self-assessment if I was interested. Is that the source also for the team assessment? Yes. Yep. Okay, great. I did um, some work with a team uh, last week where... Pro- there were problems. Things were breaking down and going wrong in the organization. And this is a team that is committed to the outcome of the organization, committed to the goals, committed. You know, you can't ask for a better commitment to the vision that they've created and they've done in a really lovely way. Except what they were missing is the interdependence among each other. So I would argue that each of the team members had strong connection to their own teams but at the expense of the connection to each other. And I think that's part of what's happening in our post-pandemic world. So in the busyness, craziness, and in the, I can't connect with everybody in the universe, so I'm going to have a strong loyalty and connection to my tight direct reports at the expense of the connection across teams. And that's what Rob Cross's work, I remembered his Hmm. name now, would actually say. So this is an interesting way to think about doing this team assessment to just check how strong is our connection apart from our commitment to the goal or the mission or the vision that we have going as a team. So I like that. Yeah, the, the, the team connection assessment evaluates how closely they're connected to their team members how closely they're connected to the manager and then how closely they're connected to the organization itself. So it it tracks all three of those. Um, And ultimately how it would work is a manager does it in answering it in the eyes of their teammates, their team members, and then the team members do it. And it's all anonymous, but then the aggravator report uh, funnels up to the manager and then they, they get all those, those data points. And here's another thing that I think will be encouraging for, for folks is that you don't have to address loneliness by talking about it. (laughs) 
you know, I, some people are still going to bristle at it. I'm going to try, I'm going to encourage you to use loneliness because over the two years I've been studying it, every time I bring it up, people lean in because it's a universal human condition and we've done, but we've never talked about it. So we're all, all eagerly having our own experience, eager to talk about it, but you don't have to talk about it. You don't have to, you know, roll out the carpet and do a banner saying we're going to address loneliness, just do simple pro-social behaviors. Uh, and, and you can think, you know, talk about it in the, in the context of creating stronger team connection. That's right. usually a little bit easier to swallow. All right. And that also has implications. How do you foster that kind of connection as we go to things like um, open, not open floor seating, but hoteling again, where your desks is moving every day and you're not sure where you're going to be. That, that is a risk zone that it doesn't breed connection unless you actually sort of foster it. All right. It's also interesting that you said solitude is positive, And this may explain why we're all seeing an explosion in the coaching world. Because I think people are needing a dedicated time for some reflection and some planning and some anticipation and how do what do I do to get more out of this group of people and out of myself? All right. So what else can leaders do that's going to make a difference? Yeah. So uh, another thing to think about is um, the second step is to invest in connection. And in the book, we, we kind of break it down into the three areas. You got to invest in safe environments. You know, kind of this creating this psychological yeah. safety inside your organization is really kind of the bedrock for all these these connections mm-hmm. and more, um, you know, uh, for people to really come out of their shell and to create authentic uh, relationships with each other. And then we talk about uh, personal connections, you know, kind of one on one and then kind of working to make sure that the team is feeling connected as well. So let me give some thoughts around the psychological safety since that's really kind of the first uh, big yeah. first step. And I like to use the analogy. Well, I guess I not necessarily the analogy, but what well, is an analogy? But it's the story of Joseph Strauss who built the Golden Gate Bridge. Are you familiar with this story, Wanda? Only from reading the book, but go ahead. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so Joseph Strauss is the chief engineer of, of building the Golden Gate Bridge, and uh, it was truly groundbreaking. The project was was going to take thirty five million dollars to build, and back then it was so dangerous to to build these bridges that. If you spent $1 million creating or, or, you know, investing in a bridge, it usually resulted in about one death. So they were anticipating 35 deaths to build the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, Joseph Strauss said, not on my watch. And he actually invested $2.7 million in today's dollars into p- putting a safety net underneath the uh, the bridge and extended 10 feet on, on either side. And um, they actually completed the project under budget and they completed the cable portion four times faster than was ever even imagined was possible. And, and so the, the productivity went through the roof, even though he spent extra time and money creating a safe environment and actually uh, 19 people fell off the, the bridge, but actually hit the net bounced right back up and went right back to work. And of course you can imagine uh, it attracted more workers because people that didn't have the skill set to build the bridge were willing to come to work because they knew it was safe and they could learn in a very safe environment. And morale was boosted because eventually uh, workers were jumping into the net during their breaks as a, as, as for fun. (laughs) (laughs) And, and then, uh, so, so, so hopefully you're getting that analogy, right? The safety net uh, is so important and it creates this environment where people can really thrive. And that's really important as it relates to our connections. Um, and so creating a, one way to, to, to do this is for leaders is to speak last. 
in a mm-hmm. meeting. Uh, too often we, we see leaders that'll come in, you know, they set the agenda, they kind of cast the vision and then they say, what do you think team? At that yeah. point, it's too late, right? There's no psychological safety. Psychological safety happens when people have, think, feel that they have equal opportunity to have a voice and that their voice is heard. Well, when leaders are blazing the trail and, and, and tell them where their folks are going without giving them proper uh, insight and, and voice into that, um, it really squanders psychological safety. So it's important to create that space and create the environment where people feel like they're being heard because that's going to cultivate greater connection, not only with the leader and the team, but amongst the team as well. Right. Okay. So leaders going last, because you know the point when the leader is given their opinion, everybody kind of lines and line behind it. And then if I have a dissenting opinion, it takes a lot of courage to go against that dissenting opinion. So a lot, I love the story of Joseph Strauss and the Golden Gate Bridge. That's what a great, both a metaphor and an understanding of the power of a safety net. Um, Everybody's talking about psychological safety and fairly everybody is saying, so what am I supposed to do? So do you have any more tips? The leaders goes last. Can you give us a couple more tips on how to create the safety net? Yeah. Um, so Google did their famous study, uh, Project Aristotle, where they, they their goal was to study what made the highest performing teams, what made them the highest performing teams. And they concluded that at the end of the day, it was psychological safety and more specifically, it was having proportional conversations. Mm-hmm. So again, meaning that everyone felt like they all had the same opportunity to, to be heard. Um, now, this can be tricky if you have, you know, depending on your team, especially for introverts, right? They're not ones to necessarily speak up. So sometimes you have to create back channels, right? Um, or you have to uh, send the meeting agenda in advance. So those introverts have time to read that and actually digest it and then come prepared with their thoughts or you have to create space on the backside where some of those folks that need time to, to digest and process can then uh, be heard and have a voice. So that's important. The other one I think that's really helpful is this idea around listening to unlock, uh, listening to unlock. And so too often, all of us are guilty of this. We listen to either win an, an argument or we listen to fix a perceived problem. And those don't do a whole lot in actually cultivating stronger connections with others, right? <laughs> um, yeah. The one that's really helpful is this third category, which is to unlock a new perspective or understanding of the individual in front of you. And so it's this idea of really just trying to be fully present and trying to understand the perspective. It's essentially de- demonstrating empathy, right. uh, but a, a, a really simple tool to, to put in the back pocket personal, personally, or in the work context is asking folks before we have a conversation, Hey, do you want me to listen to understand, to, um, to fix or to share? So the understand is the unlocking portion fix, obviously to fix it. And to share is essentially to win an argument or share your opinion. Reminds me of Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people, you know, seek first to understand. And then to be understood is one of the you know phrases that I think people cite of his all the time. But I love that. Am I listening to share? Am I listening to fix? Am I listening to understand? And that I haven't heard that frame really good when I like it a lot. Um, I want to underscore this whole notion of proportional conversation, which is the Google study. I'm sure most people have read about it. If you haven't just do Google, Google psychological safety, you'll get the results that are coming out. But what we know about the best performing teams is that everybody speaks, everybody speaks equally often and in random order so that there is no natural following of one person after the other person. So it's at making sure that every voice has been heard. Single thing you want to do as a leader, 
Don't let anybody leave the meeting without speaking. Ask, keep asking, don't let it go. And then be the last one to voice your opinion as well as this listen to unlock. All right. So I've got that as a leader, I need to look at where we are on the loneliness, pay attention to it. I need to invest in connection, which is about creating the safety and creating opportunities for one-to-one personal connection. Any tactics you're seeing work particularly well to foster that one-to-one connection? Um, yeah, I think um, the, the final chapter in the books is my favorite. It's called Be Interruptible. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty controversial, right? That, that Especially for leaders, they're thinking, oh my gosh, like I can't, I can't not be interrupted. I've got so many things to do. And I would argue, well, you're the person that needs to be interrupted in that case, right? That, um, so this idea of be interruptible is um, when things, when something uh, catches your attention, specifically in this context, others, people, um, how, how quickly do we draw our attention away from what's at hand to that individual wow. that's, that's near us? Um, and um, I'm trying to think if I should, uh, what story I could use here, but in the book, we use essentially the, uh, the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? From the Christmas Carol and how he was just, you know, constantly just focused on building and growing and building and growing. And then he had some very uh, interesting interruptions that made him, you know, uh, kind of ignited this other side to him. And we just, we're all guilty of that, right? And if busyness, if we're all saying that busyness is contributing to our isolation and, and severing our connections, then we should be more interruptible. We should leave this never leaving task to robots because what we do as humans is we show up for each other and giving that full attention, that full presence with others is so important. And to give this additional context, um, oftentimes in my live sessions, when I'm interacting with large groups, I ask them what they think is the most valuable resource on the planet. And I often get responses like water and air and people. And I get all these great, um, great responses. And then I, I propose something that's they're not thinking about. And that is uh, human attention is actually one of the most valuable resources on the planet. Because if you think about uh, Meta or AKA Facebook, they have a close to $1 trillion uh, market cap. And what do they do? All they do is mine attention. They're not mining oil or mining for other valuable resources. They're, they're mining human attention. So if we can be, if we want to lessen loneliness, we have to first understand when is loneliness lessened? It's when we give our attention to something, when we receive attention is when we feel belonged, we feel included, we feel seen. And so we should not be underestimating human attention. And so again, back to this idea of be interruptible, uh, when things get us off track, monitor what you feel in that instance. Do you feel uh, a sense of, of anger or irritability uh, when you're when you're when you get distracted and 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 you have an opportunity to put your attention on a beating heart versus a you know an urgent email. <laughs> you know, those are those moments. You know, really take inventory of what that feels like. Because if if your if if your irritability is high in those moments, that could be a massive indication that you need to start thinking about how do you work in more margin in your in your schedule because right. it's it's in that margin is where those meaningful connections happen. And it's becoming harder when we're working remotely, right? Because it's so easy to balance from uh, meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. And we don't have those subtle bump-ins or run-ins in between meetings or conversations on the elevator, et cetera. So we have to work really hard at fighting for our connections and putting the appropriate guardrails up. 
Brian, I think that is powerful. Just today, I have two commentaries on this one. One, just today, I was talking with a very senior leader who's saying, oh, we had a problem that ended up I had to jump in and fix. And everybody felt all upset about it because it was a problem that didn't need to happen and, you know, turned hours. But he said, part of the reason that a problem occurs is because if I'm honest, when I was meeting with the individual to get the project updates, I wasn't really fully attending. I'm thinking so much about what the last meeting was and about what I've got to do next and about the email I haven't sent and about the budget that I've got to review and, 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 and I wasn't fully attending. Okay. And that is a business challenge in addition to this whole notion of how did the individual feel as a result of not being attended to. So I think one of the challenges for leaders is learning to be able to shift your attention so that when I'm out of, I I drop that work and I shift my attention wholeheartedly to the human being that's in front of me and they feel it. So that's my Mm -hmm. first, I think you're absolutely right, man. And when somebody does that for you, they give you full attention. It feels amazing, regardless of the context of the conversation, just feels fabulous. All right. The second thing I'm going to say is one of the things I say to leaders, if you want to you know, make your diverse talent feel a little more valued and included is watch where you put your attention, because I will bet you always give your marginal attention to the favorite few, the ones that are familiar, the ones that sit right beside your desk in some ways and spread that attention around is also going to make a massive difference. So couldn't couldn't agree with you more that this notion of being interruptible, meaning fully attending when people are in front of you was powerful. One other thing to add to that, and that yeah. is be mindful of who's interrupting you, right? Because that's, that's typically a good indication of whom it needs more of your attention or perhaps where you need to be more clear about certain objectives or responsibilities. Right. And we, we highlight the study in the book around Gottman, who did this study with personal relationships, and he was saying the, the relationships that last the longest are the ones who who accept bids, meaning when someone needs your attention or tries to get you involved in something, you accept that, that bid, you turn your attention in your present in that moment. Um, that goes a long ways is, is accepting those bids when it comes to connections. Great. What a great way to end is Gottman's research on relationships. I think we could all, if we were follow that, we'd be in a whole lot better place. Ryan, um, I love it. I love the book. It's called Connectable, How Leaders Can Move Teams from Isolated to All In. Slowly, steadily, piece by piece, we're going to turn leaders into psychologists in some form <laughs> with more comfort in talking about language like loneliness um, in emotional language, even if you don't talk about it, but understanding how powerful an impact it's having on people and that the anecdotes are not that difficult to just build connection. As you've said so rightly, loneliness isn't the absence of people, it's the absence of connection. So looking for the ways to find connection in a day-to-day basis. So Ryan Jenkins, thanks for being here. And the website again is lesslonely.com. Thanks, Wanda. All right. It's a pleasure. If you have enjoyed this, uh, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com for other ways to apply this concept. And join us next week for more wisdom in how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.